waiting is hard. Waiting is hard. Nobody, nobody likes to wait. Nobody that I know likes to wait. If we do have to wait, we get nervous, we complain, we tense up, or, or we, we fill the waiting time with something. You know, if you go to the doctor and you got to wait, or you got to wait in a line, what do you do? You, you pull out your phone and you fill that waiting time with something, you know, Facebook or news or whatever. Nobody likes to wait. We always avoid waiting whenever we can. And when I went to China a couple of years ago, I found out they have a pretty creative solution for waiting. They just don't do it. Uh, here in America, you know, if you go to a, a restaurant like a fast food, you know, you, you uh, line up behind, you make a line behind the counter and you wait your turn, right? And, and when we went to China, we ate at a McDonald's. You know, normally when we travel, we like to try new stuff and everything. But we went to McDonald's in China for one really simple reason. It's because they have a picture menu. And so you don't have to speak any Chinese and you can get whatever you want, you know. So we went to McDonald's and it was uh, pretty surprising because nobody there waits in line. It's just not a part of their culture the way that it is here. It's so ingrained in us. And I went to this McDonald's and I lined up behind somebody just like I always do. And then like three or four people came, uh, just jumped right past me, right up to the counter. And I thought, what's going on here? And then I realized there's, there's four registers and there's like seven people all lined up and they're trading money and getting food. It was like the floor of the stock exchange. They were all just going, you know. I've never seen anything like it, but they just don't wait in line there in China. It's just not a part of their culture. And I sat there for a few minutes, and I realized, hey, if I don't jump in here, I'm not going to get any food. So, so I went for it. And uh, uh, another time in China, we were at this buffet-style dinner, this big table full of all kinds of food, and some of it looked good, and some of it just looked mysterious, you know, but it was there, and um, and there was this announcement that came over, and it was all in Chinese, I didn't understand it, didn't pay any attention to it, but uh, as soon as that ended, people flooded that table like there was no tomorrow, I thought, oh, that's what that announcement meant, you know, so, uh, and uh, we waited just a little too long, and by the time we wiggled our way up to the table, a lot of the food was already gone, you know. Uh, interestingly, one of the first things to go was a big pile of pickled chicken claws. Those were on a plate, and they went to town on those, and uh, so we missed those. But uh, but waiting, it's not something they worry about in China. It's just not a part of their culture, you know. But we worry about waiting, right? Uh, we worry that if we wait too long, we're going to miss something, something like pickled chicken claws. But uh, we worry because... Uh, if we wait too long, we might miss what God has for us. And uh, we worry about waiting mostly because when we wait, we have to give up a little bit of control. And nobody likes that. Do we all want to be calling our own shots, don't we? Well, in today's chapter from Esther, there is a lot of waiting. The Esther waits, the king waits, Haman waits, and we wait, trying to figure out what's God, what's God going to do, what's his plan. Uh, and in all this waiting, we're really anxiously waiting to see if Esther is going to emerge as the hero that we hope she is. And she's put her faith in God's purpose, but, but what happens next? We don't know. Will she be the hero? And, and in some ways, the way we answer that question depends a little bit on how we define hero. 
What makes a person a hero? Uh, there's a lot of different ways to answer that question, and uh, almost as many ways as there are heroes in the world. Uh, if you ask Psychology Today magazine, they'd say heroism is the willingness to make a personal sacrifice for the benefit of others. If you ask Joseph Campbell, the author of Hero with a Thousand Faces, he'd say a hero is someone who has given his or her life to something bigger than oneself. Uh, For Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, the famous writer, a hero is someone who's brave. He says a hero is no braver than an ordinary man. He's just braver five minutes longer. Another, Another definition I came across says that to be a hero, you do what anybody ought to do, but you control your fear. It's interesting. There's probably just as many ways to define what a hero is as there are examples of a hero. Uh, We could look at Audie Murphy, the most decorated soldier of World War II, and look at his character and his actions and come up with a definition of a hero. Or we could look at uh, Martin Luther King Jr., Harriet Tubman, Jim Elliott. We could go on and on and on, look at the lives of these or other heroes and infer a a little something about the, the courage and other qualities that make a person heroic. But now we can already celebrate Esther as a hero because she's made this big decision. She's, uh, if you were here last week, you know, we, we talked about putting our faith in God's purposes, and Esther has done that. She's done it. And she's laid down her rights. She's trusted God and his purpose for her. And, and maybe we're at that same point. Maybe we're willing to put our faith in God's purposes, but what about his timing? That's a little more challenging. Once we've committed ourselves to God, we we want to be rewarded for that. We want to see God show up and, and save the day, but God doesn't always work like that. He doesn't always work on our timeline. Uh, one thing we've learned from this book is that God is in control even when we can't see him. And so we're, we're willing to put our faith in God's purposes, but now what? Now, how long is it going to take before God brings that purpose to life? Well, sometimes it takes a long, long time. I, I think about uh, the story of Abraham, and God had promised Abraham that his offspring would inherit the, the promised land. And, and Abraham wanted to know for sure, how could he know that what God said is really true? And so he asked God, and uh, God's reply is not at all what Abraham was expecting to hear. God said, for 400 years, your offspring are going to be slaves, but then they're going to come out of slavery and they'll inherit the land. So, so Abraham asked for some proof from God, and God says, yeah, you'll see, just wait 400 years. So Abraham was committed to God's purpose, but he took a little issue with God's timing. And uh, maybe we've come to that point ourselves. We've certainly come to that point in the story of Esther that might make us take some issue with God's timing. Our story has been so dramatic, so full of twists and unexpected turns that we think that maybe the whole rest of the story is going to play out that way, but it doesn't. In in chapter 5, where we are today, it really grinds to a halt. And uh, you'll recall the cliffhanger ending to chapter 4 when Esther boldly and courageously decides that she's going to go and confront the king and she says, if I perish, I perish. Uh, uh, Very heroic. Listen to what John Piper says about this moment. He says, if I perish, I perish. What does that mean? It means that Esther did not know what the outcome of her act would be. She had no special revelation from God. She made her decision on the basis of wisdom and love for her people and trust in God. She did not know how it would turn out. So she made her decision and handed the results over to God. If I perish, I perish. 
So using God's word as her guide, she calls the people to fast on her behalf for three days. And in that three days, she's renewing her faith in God's purposes. She understands the risk. She said herself, any person who approaches the king without being summoned will be put to death unless the king extends his scepter uh, to her. And in fact, archaeologists have unearthed a large uh, Persian relief that shows a king sitting on his throne. He's got a big, long scepter, and standing behind him is a servant with a giant axe. So the, the threat is real. Uh, you know, all I'm saying is if I were the king, I would want the guy with the axe out in front where I could keep an eye on him. But, uh, but the point is that this is a real risk, and, and Esther's fears are not at all unfounded. And, and still, she resolves to do what's right. She resolves to put her faith in God, fasting for three days. And so, so let's pick up the story in chapter 5, and let's see how God works. Chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her, and he held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so we may do what Esther asked. So that's her plan. She risks her life to ask for a dinner date. That seems kind of anticlimactic, really. I mean, we've waited all these weeks of this sermon series to find out what happens, and now we just have to wait again. Well, waiting is hard. She's made this commitment to put her faith in God's purpose for her, and this is all she does? Ask the king to dinner? Well, yeah. Yeah, but this is actually a brilliant plan. We've learned some things about old King Xerxes in this book, and we've learned, among other things, that he's pretty easy to influence. We've seen over and over that uh, from the beginning he's been swayed by his former queen, swayed by all kinds of different advisors, swayed by Haman, this bad guy who has it out for all the Jews. And so I think part of her plan is just to get the king off by himself, away from distractions, let him see the situation for what it really is. But notice something else here. Esther invites him to this meal But she's already prepared it. Look at verse 4. That's some faith. She's had no idea if she would live or die, but she had faith enough in God to prepare this royal meal before she even asks him. That's some boldness right there. And she also asks that Haman would come along. Now, that seems pretty risky, but this plan of Esther's is really, really brilliant because she's sending the king a lot of signals here. Uh, First, she lets him know that she's got something important to say. Otherwise, she wouldn't show up unannounced. So that's a signal right there. And and she's telling him, hey, I can't talk about it right here out in the open. Why don't we have a nice intimate dinner and I'll tell you about it there instead. So the king knows that that she must know something sensitive, something that that can't be shared out here in the open. So right away, she's got to have his attention, right? I mean, the situation is unusual. And if he's smart enough to be the king, he's smart enough to pick up on at least some of the signals here. But finally, she gives him one more signal. She says, bring Haman. And so whatever it is that Esther wants to share with him, it has something to do with Haman. So with all these signals, it's no surprise the king jumps all over this invitation. I mean, right away, he says, hey, bring Haman, and they're ready to go. And so I think this is her plan. I think she, she's getting the king curious, 
But more than that, she's getting him thinking a little bit about Haman. Uh, because you know, as soon as she mentions his name, the king has to be thinking about, okay, all these interactions he's had with Haman lately, and maybe rethinking that, and what did I miss? What does she know that I don't know? And all these kind of things. And what did he really say about that? And can he really be trusted when he said this? And all these things. So Esther has them both right where she wants him. She's got the king curious about Haman, maybe wondering if he's up to something wrong. She's got Haman excited because he gets this special invitation. So it seems like an odd plan. It seems very anticlimactic, but it also seems so crazy that it must be God at work. Uh, I mean, who else would come up with such a plan if somebody told you, hey, I want you to uh, invite somebody to dinner, but it might cost you your life. Would you do it? Of course not. It's crazy. But it really seems that Esther's just, just taking advantage of the tools that she has. You know, traditionally here in ancient Persia, the king would dine alone. You know, people thought he had sort of godlike qualities, and so he was always secluded off by himself. Sometimes there'd even be a veil or a screen between him and all the other people. But as the queen, Esther has a certain ability to penetrate that custom. And so she's, she's using the one tool she's got in order to win the favor one more time of this king. It really is a brilliant plan. I can just imagine her processing it over these past three days as she's fasting and seeking God. And so, so let's keep reading. Let's find out how her plan works out. Look at verse 5. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, now what is your petition? It will be given to you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be granted. Esther replied, my petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. That's how the plan goes? That seems even crazier. I mean, she's got him right where she wants him. He's happy. He's drinking wine, which we already know makes him agreeable to just about anything, you know. But Esther doesn't bite. Xerxes gives her this wide-open invitation up to half the kingdom, and still she resists. Instead, she just invites him to another banquet on the next night. Well, why would she do that? Well, I don't know. I don't know what her motivations are, but we do learn something that God has in mind. God wasn't ready for her to lay everything out yet because he wanted something else to happen first. He wanted something to happen that involves Mordecai. Let's read what happens next. Verse 9. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above all the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to a banquet she gave, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, Have a pole set up, reaching to a height of 50 cubits, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. Well, this suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. So before Esther could successfully fulfill God's plan, Mordecai had to anger Haman one more time. 
Haman has such a fragile ego, he has to keep rebooting it over and over again. So he's on this ego high, getting invited to a special banquet, but then his ego is crushed when Mordecai won't pay him any attention. So he has to rehash all of his accomplishments, but still that's not enough. And so his wife has to rebuild his ego with her suggestion, and and it's quite a suggestion. She says, build this giant seven-story pole, the tallest thing I can think of, you know, and, and impale Mordecai on it as a punishment. Maybe that will finally put Haman's fragile ego to rest. And, and by the way, impalement was a common thing in ancient Persia, kind of like a, a precursor to crucifixion. Uh, just the Romans kind of took the idea and ran with it later on. And so, so Mordecai, even unknowingly, plays right into God's plan. That's just the last straw for Haman, and he does something that he's going to regret eventually. He has this pole built. And this little side story, it really highlights who's really in control. You know, throughout this book, you'll remember there's no specific mention of God, but he's definitely in control. And this little story demonstrates that. Because Esther, she could have broken the news to Xerxes right there at the end of that banquet. But she didn't, I think, because this event had to happen first. God has a plan, and nothing's going to stop that plan. Which really leads us to our big idea. Because just like Esther, we want to put our faith in God's plan, and not in our own power. We want to put our faith in God's plan, not in our own power. God is in control of Esther's circumstances. He's in control of ours. Uh, We want to put our faith in his plan instead of just manipulating the circumstances by our own power and our own abilities. Trust his timing. And all the things that we've learned from our study of Esther, this is probably the hardest one of all, because it's just so easy to do things on our own. And it's just so hard to wait. We know ourselves. We know what we're capable of. And when we have a problem that concerns us, we want to turn to our favorite person to solve it, ourselves. It's so easy to take control of our own problems. What's hard is giving control to God, to putting our faith in God's plan. Because what's one of the first things we learn about God? We learn that he doesn't operate on our timeline. God seems to move really slow when we want to move fast, and he moves way too fast when we want to just slow down, right? So putting our faith in our own power, that's easy, because then we get to call all the shots. We don't have to wait for anybody. Putting our faith in God's plan is hard because it means we have to surrender some control to him. It means we have to wait on him, and waiting is hard. But God uses that waiting time to help us, to grow us. And as we apply this story of Esther's waiting to our own lives, uh, I want to encourage you with something that I saw on Instagram. I can't believe I said that out loud, but it's true. It's true. Uh, Erin Hutchison, many of you know her. She's a faithful member of Trinity here, and she shared a quote on Instagram a while back. And uh, it's a great quote. It's from John Piper. He's a pastor. And he says this. He says, The strength of patience hangs on our capacity to believe that God is up to something good for us in all our delays and detours. If we want to put our faith in God's plan and not just in our own power, we have to believe that God is up to something good. And that should encourage us in our time of waiting. And it's in this waiting time when our faith is really challenged. If we wait we're putting ourselves at God's mercy. We're, if we're anxious to take matters into our own hands, we might miss God's good plan. The strength of patience hangs on our capacity to believe that God is up to something good. 
If we put our faith in him and in his goodness, then the waiting is not quite so hard. Uh, I met with a woman a while back, and, and she's concerned about her son. She's got an adult son who's kind of wandered away from the faith, doesn't show any interest in, in spiritual things, and, and she's really brokenhearted for him. And so she and I have committed to, to praying for him. And, and one of the things I think about as I pray for him is, is this very idea that God is good, and uh, God is going to do what's right. Uh, we, we put our faith in God's plan. It doesn't mean we understand God's plan, but it does mean we understand God's character. He's a good God. He's up to something good. He always does what's right, even if it takes a long, long time. So what do we do while we wait? Uh, what do we do to put our faith in God's plan instead of our own power to make things happen? Well, I want to leave us with four things that we can do while we're waiting on God. And the first thing is very simple, but it's very, very critical. If you want to put your faith in God's plan, you have to increase your connection to God. And throughout this series, we've highlighted the value of connecting to God through relying on His Word, memorizing Scripture. We've talked about fasting and prayer. And these are all ways to get to the same idea, just increasing our connection to God. If we want to put our faith in God's plan, we've got to have a strong enough relationship with God to be able to go when he says go and stop when he says stop. Uh, the Bible doesn't specifically say, but I can only imagine how much prayer Esther did in between this, this first banquet and the second banquet. I mean, it has to be all she could think about. You know, when you don't know what's coming next, but you want to put your faith in God's plan, you've got to increase your connection to God. Pray. Invite other people to pray with you. That's, that's one of the values of my growth group in my own life. I know I've got a group of people that are committed to praying for me, to praying for my family no matter what happens. And, and prayer, that's just a critical way of increasing our connection to God. You may remember a quote that I shared the first week of this series. Prayer is not finally about getting things from God, but it's about getting God. And when you pray, you grow closer to God. Just like any relationship, the more time you spend with another person, the closer you are to that person. It's very much the same with prayer. So if you're in a time of waiting, increase your connection to God. You may need to realize that God may not be waiting on something to happen, but he may be waiting on you to be changed. So a second thing to do while we wait is to remember God's past faithfulness. Remember his faithfulness. Uh, uh, rehash in your mind these things that God has done, times when, when he came through and you never imagined how it could happen. Uh, I've got a journal in my office full of stories when God showed up in ways that were unexpected and, and took care of our family in different ways. I'll, I'll show you one quick story. Uh, when Ann and I were first married, it was a long time ago, uh, I was in school and we were broke. And one month, we didn't have enough money to pay our rent. And we were trying to kind of figure out what to do, figure out what to do. And sort of by default, really, we said, I said, you know, we're just going to have to trust God. And uh, I wish I'd thought of that sooner, you know, but that's, I'm just being honest with you. And uh, Ann said, what do you think, money's just going to, like, show up in the mailbox? I said, well, I don't know. So you can probably guess where the story's going, right? Next day, open up the mailbox, there's a big wad of cash in there. And we used it to pay the rent. And, and we remember that story all the time. When we come up with tight financial situations, we go and check the mailbox. You never know. But, but God, he's in the business of rescue. He's in the business of deliverance. He has a plan. And part of putting our faith in his plan is reminding ourselves what he's capable of, uh, remembering God's past faithfulness. My favorite professor in seminary used to always say, what God has done in the past is a model 
and a promise of what he will do in the future, though he's too creative to do the same thing in the same way twice. We remember God's past faithfulness in our time of waiting. We're encouraged and hopefully inspired to put our faith in him and his plan. It's, it's just helpful to remember that God is faithful. Uh, each of us probably has times when uh, stories when, when we didn't know what the future would hold and, and God showed up in surprising ways. And it doesn't always look the same because God's too creative to do the same thing in the same way twice. But we can put our faith in his plan knowing that his character, his character as a good God, his character as a faithful God, is unchanging. If you don't have a lot of stories of God's faithfulness in your life, read the Bible. The Bible's full of stories, like Esther is a great story of that God brought deliverance in ways that we could never imagine. Uh, or uh, think about uh, Jesus. He's proof that God loves you and that God has a plan, and that God's provision will come from the most unexpected ways. Uh, Even Jesus' closest friends had no idea how God would use Jesus to accomplish his purposes. So there's other things that we can do while we wait, too. Often uh, we feel really paralyzed by indecision. We want to do something, but we're not sure what to do. And in those times, you need to keep your focus on the next right thing. Keep your focus on the next right thing. Thing. You know, often we want to just laser in our focus on the ultimate outcome, especially when the stakes are high, like they are for Esther. But, but that kind of focus, it creates paralysis, it creates indecision. We can't control the final outcome, but we can take good, right, next steps right in front of us. We can focus on the next right thing. Uh, it's a lot easier to identify one thing we can do than to sit and, and worry about what the final outcome is going to be. And if you can't identify even one next right step, then just look back at the previous two points of increasing your connection to God and remembering his past faithfulness. Those are both good things that you can do. Uh, one more thing we want to do as we wait on God's plan. The fourth thing is we want to be ready. Being ready means we're positioning ourselves for whatever God has next. At some point, the waiting is going to be done. God's going to be ready, and we want to be ready too. We don't want to be caught flat-footed. And in the time of waiting, there's a lot of things you can do to make yourself ready. A little bit of it depends on, on where you are and the situation that, that you're in. But, but maybe you need to make some financial changes, or maybe you need to make some spiritual changes. Uh, uh, there's a lot of different ways to be ready. I've got some friends who are, are missionaries. They're in the process of raising the last bit of money before they uh, relocate to China to serve the Lord there. And um, uh, they're in the waiting time. But in the meantime, they're ready. They've got their bags packed. They've got a lot of contacts in China they've already made. And so as soon as that money comes through, they're ready. They're ready to go. And they, they've uh, done what they can to, to make themselves ready so that when God's plan comes to fruition, they know what to do. And, and so one thing we can all do in a time of waiting is we can be ready, position ourselves to jump as soon as God opens that door or, or makes the light turn green. So that's four things that we can do. Each of us can do while we wait. And in our own family, we've done all these things at different times. And God has used them all to grow us and to align us to him, to make us more like him. And ultimately, that's why God makes us wait, in order to make us more like him. And as our family, over and over again, God has given us one particular verse that really encourages us in our waiting. We sang it earlier this morning, and it's a verse that is probably familiar to a lot of you. It's Isaiah 40. Verse 31, it says, They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk 
and not faint. And in your worship folders, you've got a little card like this that has that verse on it. Uh, if it fell out, then you can find some on the, the table back there. But, but this is my family's gift to you. Uh, just God has used this verse over and over again to encourage us in our waiting time. And I want you to use it just as a way to remind you of God, what God can do for you and what God can do in you in a time of waiting. So meditate on this verse, encourage yourself with God's word, and uh, on the back you'll see a, a quote that encompasses a lot of the same idea, a guy named Paul Tripp. He says, waiting is not just about what we get at the end of the wait, but about who we become as we wait. So God uses our waiting time, time when we're putting our faith in his plan to change us, to align us to him. And I want you to use this quote and use this verse to remind you of God's plan to change you, to make you more like him in your time of waiting. So let's put our faith in his plans and not in our own power. Let's pray. God, we are uh, encouraged by your word. We're challenged by uh, the, the reality that you're in control. And we want to we want to take the reins, we want to keep our hands on the wheel, and yet we know that uh, sometimes giving up control and waiting on you is absolutely the best plan, and we want to be more sensitive to you. We know that means we've got to increase our connection to you. We've got to increase our prayer and surround ourselves with other people who will pray for us, Lord. And so my prayer is for, for all of us that we would be sensitive to people, that sensitive to people who need encouragement in the time of waiting, sensitive to your word that, that guides us in that time. And, and I want to pray, too, for people who are, who are in a time of waiting. Maybe there's people who are in between jobs or people who are, you know, uh, just trying to see what's next, trying to figure out what the next step is, next opportunity, that you would use uh, your word, use your word to encourage those people, to equip them, and use that time to make them more like you, to make each of us more like you. I thank you for the way that you have guided us as a faith family to be uh, more aligned with you and your purposes in our valley and pray that you would just continue to do that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.